Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. Today, actor Billy Crudup. He played a virtuoso rock guitarist in Almost Famous, a cynical TV executive in the series The Morning Show, and countless theater roles. Now Crudup stars in the new futurist Apple TV series Hello Tomorrow, where he plays a salesman marketing timeshare properties on the moon. You'll be saying, wow, I love living on the moon. Also, we'll hear from Ari Shapiro, one of the hosts of NPR's All Things Considered. He'll talk about his life moving between different worlds. He's traveled the world as a journalist and has sung around the world with the group Pink Martini. He also does a cabaret act with actor Alan Cumming. And then he sings, You're the top. Your career is glittered. You're the top. You're all things considered. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. Here she is. If you're a regular listener to NPR, you know my guest, Ari Shapiro, as one of the hosts of All Things Considered. You've heard his reporting and his work revealing other people's stories. But there's so many fascinating parts of his own story that he reveals in his new memoir, I'm pretty sure he's the only NPR host, past or present, who can say he married his boyfriend in San Francisco in 2004 when then-Mayor Gavin Newsom decided to allow marriage licenses to be issued to same-sex couples, but soon after had his marriage annulled by the California Supreme Court, which voided all the city's gay marriages. What other host has sung at Carnegie Hall and the Hollywood Bowl and performed in countries around the world? Ari Shapiro's done that with the group Pink Martini. I am confident that no other NPR host can say they do a cabaret act with actor Alan Cumming, and one night after performing their show on Fire Island, they went to a gay underwear party. Of course, Shapiro's memoir is also about his life in journalism. He started at NPR as Nina Totenberg's intern, became an editorial assistant on Morning Edition, and eventually became a Justice Department reporter, a White House correspondent during the Obama presidency, London bureau chief, and foreign correspondent. He's reported from war zones. He's been hosting All Things Considered since 2015. Among his awards are two National Edward R. Murrow Awards— for his reporting on the life and death of Breonna Taylor and his coverage of the Trump administration's asylum policies on the U.S.-Mexico border. He also won the Silver Gavel Award from the American Bar Association and the American Gavel Award from the American Judges Association. His new memoir is called The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. Ari Shapiro, welcome to Fresh Air. It is a pleasure to talk with you on our show, and I really enjoyed the memoir a lot. Thank you so much for having me, Terry. And I felt like I got to know so much about you, all of which is interesting. <laughs> Even what kind of underwear I wear. Exactly. Blue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'd like you to compare Ari Shapiro, NPR journalist, ATC host, White House correspondent, Justice Department correspondent, with you, who you are on stage with Pink Martini, or with Alan Cumming and your cabaret act? There is such a rush of being on stage in front of a crowd and knowing in that moment 
that either you've got them in the palm of your hand or you don't and you have to get them back. There is an electricity and an adrenaline and a thrill that feels like, you know, there's this one song I sing with Pink Martini. It's called A Maintenant. It's in French. And there are like four key changes. And as I Which sing Americans it, might know as What Now My Love. Exactly. Yes. It was recorded in English by Shirley Bassey and um, Elvis and many others. And as the keys go higher and higher and higher, I feel like energy, like electricity is coming through my feet and my hands. And I'm sharing that with the audience and I feel them giving it back to me. And it is like, I, I feel almost like a conduit for something. And when I'm in the field for NPR stories or when I'm hosting All Things Considered, in a certain way, I almost... I don't want to disappear, but I want to be a surrogate for the listener. I want to make the listener feel like they could be where I am, like they could be in my shoes, whether that is, you know, following Venezuelan refugees, leaving their country as it implodes, or whether it's interviewing a politician and asking the questions that a listener may never have the opportunity to ask that politician. It's not that I want to disappear, but I want to be able to do justice to the person who is not there, whereas... In the performance, I feel like I am actively exchanging energy with the people who are, if that makes sense. Yeah, but another thing, just in terms of who you are in your performing life and in your NPR life. In your NPR life, you have to be um, an NPR person. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't get to swear on NPR. (laughs) Yeah, but on stage you get to be um, funny, you get to be extroverted, you get to be very gay. I mean, like the mm-hmm. Alan Cumming Cabaret Act has all kinds of gay jokes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that stuff you don't really get to do on the air. So those are the two I, parts of your personality that I'm interested in hearing how you experience differently. When I do a live performance, I often, but not always, will I'll come out, I'll sing a song or whatever, and then I'll say... From the Hollywood Bowl, this is Pink Martini. I'm Ari Shapiro, which gets a laugh because people recognize, you know, that voice, that cadence. And then I pause and I say, which might be a line you've used, Terry. I say, and you will look nothing like what I imagined either. Which I think is a way of not only breaking the ice, but also saying this is going to be a slightly different iteration of me than you might be accustomed to hearing on NPR. Like, I bring my full self to NPR, but it's not supposed to be about me. But when I'm on stage with Alan, when I'm on stage with Pink Martini, I can make body jokes. I can talk about opinions. I don't weigh in on politics, but I can say, I hate this, I love this. I can be camp, I can be gay, I can make Jewish jokes, I can sort of toy with my identity as a vehicle for connection, which is less foregrounded when I'm on NPR. And I don't want to say it's not present when I'm on NPR because I have mentioned my husband. I always have been out on my professional life. I feel like it's less that I'm covering and more that no matter who I am when I'm anchoring all things considered, if the focus is on me, I'm doing it wrong. And so I want to try to strike a balance between bringing my full self to all the stories I tell and being a surrogate for the listener. I want to, you know, be my full self, but I also want to recognize that as a journalist, it's not about you. As a memoirist, it is. As a performer, it is. But as a journalist, that's just not the goal. You are moving toward a career as a performer with, with musicals, dramatic yeah, you know, theater, I, Broadway. A little um, bit of everything. I sort of, I sang in choirs. I did a cappella. I did musicals. I did straight plays. I took acting classes. I was an English major, not a theater major mm-hmm. at Yale. And um, when I was graduating from college, I thought about applying for graduate programs in performance, and a friend sort of talked me out of it. So I applied to as many different other things I could think of, including an NPR internship, which I got rejected for. So anybody who ever feels like they're a failure, just remember NPR's Ari Shapiro got rejected for an NPR internship. But then you found out that Nina Totenberg hired her own interns as opposed to it going through... HR or whatever. Right. So you you wrote directly to her. What was your pitch to her? I'm curious. I'm hardworking. I know how to, you know, I'm I'm reconstructing some of this in hindsight because it's 20 plus years later. But I think the key is a liberal arts education teaches you how to read, write, and think. 
And whether you're an English major, a history major, a political science major, or whatever, the ability to read a complicated document, understand what's important about it, and then describe that in writing is a skill that is applicable to Supreme Court opinions, to proposed legislation, to the Mueller report. Those are skills I use every day as a journalist. And they were absolutely useful as Nina's intern. Um, and I, they're skills I learned as an English major. A nice pitch. And I guess she <laughs> I guess it agreed with that. Yeah. So what was some of the advice she gave you that you remember? Well, the most vivid advice I remember is she heard me on the phone uh, next to her. In the, we shared a cubicle. And I was requesting an interview with somebody. And I was sort of, um, I wonder, would you consider maybe possibly... And Nina shouted, Ari, grow a pair. <laughs> she was like, you need to ask for what you want directly and firmly and don't take no for an answer. That's Nina. Or those words to live by in the future. Absolutely. I've learned so much from Nina. I remember I would, after she would do an interview, I would transcribe it. This is before there were auto transcription services. And in transcribing it, I would think carefully about when and where she asked the questions, when she asked a follow-up, when she moved on, how she framed her questions. Like, I learned so much because I hadn't written for the school newspaper. I hadn't taken a journalism course. Interning at NPR really was how I learned journalism. After becoming uh, an intern with Nina, you got a job as um, an editorial assistant at Morning Edition. It started off as a temporary position, and then you, you moved on eventually to Justice Department reporter, White House correspondent, London bureau chief, host of All Things Considered. But you, you did freelance reporting mm-hmm. early on before you got a job as an actual reporter at NPR. What was your reaction to hearing your voice the first time you actually heard it on the radio? And also, you say that early on you tried to have a, quote, NPR voice. What, <laughs> what, what was the voice you had in your head that you were supposed to sound like? And was there, like, somebody you were modeling that, quote, NPR voice on? I knew I could never sound like Robert Siegel or Bob Edwards, who were sort of like the two authoritative stentorian voices of NPR. I I wasn't consciously trying to do this, but I think I was aspiring to kind of like the warmth of Susan Stamberg, hopefully, and like maybe the inquisitiveness of Jackie Lydon. I, I, you ask how I reacted when I heard my voice for the first time, and it was painful. I just think, Oh, my God. I was, <laughs> first of all, over-enunciating so emphatically. I was so tense. I was, I, <laughs> forgive me, I sounded so gay. <laughs> not, that, not that that's a bad thing. Not that I try not to sound gay these days. But I, <laughs> I actually, I got a, this is a few years later. I was the first time I was guest hosting Morning Edition. I, I actually got a postcard in the mail that said, Dear Ari, please butch up. I find a daily dose of your personality annoying. Oh, <laughs> so, but wait, wait, wait. There's another sentence from that postcard that you quote in the book. I'm a person, too. Yes, that's the part that really got me. I'm a person, too. What the heck is that supposed I to mean? I love that postcard so much. It has sat framed on my desk for more than a decade now. I just treasure it. <laughs> it was signed D. Emerson, Miami, Florida. I have no idea who that person is. But I love but... that your voice itself is somehow eradicating his personhood. It was Mm -hmm. so offensive. (laughs) But I hear reporters today, particularly reporters from marginalized backgrounds, whether they're young women or people of color, talk about the listener email they get, the tweets they get about they sound too young, they sound too black, they sound like they have vocal fry, they say whatever the case Mm -hmm. may be. Um, And that is certainly targeted more at women and people of color than it is at white men such as myself, but I've gotten a, I've gotten a healthy dose of it over the years. We're listening to Terry's interview with Ari Shapiro, one of the hosts of All Things Considered. His new memoir is called The Best Strangers in the World. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break, and we'll hear from actor Billy Crudup. He's starring in the new Apple TV series Hello Tomorrow, where he plays a salesman marketing timeshare properties on the moon. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. 
Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. We're listening to Terry's conversation with Ari Shapiro, one of the hosts of All Things Considered. His new memoir is called The Best Strangers in the World. So let's talk a little bit more about your life outside journalism. You sing with Pink Martini. Mm-hmm. And which started as a local band in Portland when you were living in Portland. You moved there with your family when you were eight. You were a fan. One of your early reports was about them. You became friends with the band. And then they asked you to sing with them. Um, How did they know that you could sing? Well, after I became friends with them, anytime the band would pass through Washington, D.C. on tour, I would throw a brunch, a dinner, cocktails, barbecue, something. I would have them over. And in about 2008... There was a dinner cookout that sort of turned into a late-night sing-along around my piano. And it was Pink Martini and this other Portland band I was friends with called Blind Pilot that happened to be in town at that time. And all of my D.C. friends. And it was sort of like late into the night. We were all singing together. And the next morning, Thomas Lauderdale, the pianist who is also Pink Martini's band leader, said, Hey, we're writing this song for the next album that we want a man to sing. Why don't you come to Portland and record it for us on the album? Which to me was such a surreal out-of-body experience to be asked to sing with this band that I had loved since I was in high school. I never thought it would actually happen. And of course, I immediately said yes. And then it happened. And then I was in Portland recording with the band, terrified, um, so not confident in my ability, sure that it would never actually make it onto the album, And then it did. And then Thomas said, well, we need to find a time for you to perform this live with us. So why don't you come to the Hollywood Bowl? And so the first time I ever sang with any band live on stage anywhere was in front of 18,000 people. That's like a nightmare. (laughs) I mean, it's an incredible opportunity. It's fabulous. But it's also a nightmare. I, you know, you just have to choose not to view it as a nightmare. You just have to choose to view it as a surreal fantasy, make-a-wish, dream-come-true moment and go out there and know that it's the only time in your life this will ever happen. Except that it wasn't because I've, <laughs> I've sung there half a dozen times since. <laughs> that, that, that's really great. I want to play what you describe as the most meaningful song that you recorded with Pink Martini, and the song is called Finisma D. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we play it, I want you to tell us what made it so meaningful for you. Well, the tune was written for the first album that the band ever released in the 90s with Spanish lyrics. And for the album Jadiwi, which we released more recently, the band asked a dear friend who's since passed away named Iyad Qasim to reimagine the lyrics in Arabic. And when we recorded it in 2015, the Syrian refugee crisis was at its peak. And Iyad, whose own family are refugees, said he wrote these lyrics that sound like they're about somebody pining for a lost love. But actually, he was imagining the experience of a refugee longing for his homeland. And so he took the title of the song from something his own mother always used to say, which is, there's no breeze as sweet as the breeze of home. So... He called the song Finismadi, which means in this summer breeze. And before he passed away, the band would tour to Lebanon, Morocco, Abu Dhabi, Tunisia, and um, we would perform it and he would introduce it. And he would talk about, as a Palestinian Jordanian, what an honor it was to have the song performed by his Jewish friend. And then I would come out and sing it. We would give each other a hug. It was always this very emotional moment. And... I, as a journalist, had covered the Syrian refugee crisis, but this felt like a different way of approaching it and a different way of connecting people and a different way of telling a story about it. Well, let's hear it. This is Ari Shapiro singing Finisma D with Pink Martini. (laughs) 
بلدی فی تیف حواق البل متین سنیش هنا اینی لک فی سوال باردون تافه واهشنی ما دارم فی سنین سبرت لحو برخ ومری را وایه فی الوحدادی الما و زبوگه لسور تقا لذکرایت فی لوحک باردون تافی واهش نیما دارم فی نیسم دیر کلم کتیر من قلبی بیل الحا was my guest Ari Shapiro singing Finisma D with the band Pink Martini. Ari, as you know, is the one of the hosts of All Things Considered. Ari, you really have a beautiful voice. Uh, Thank you. You're so lucky to have that, that gift. Well, I want to ask you about performing with Alan Cumming mm-hmm. after meeting him backstage at Cabaret when he was doing a revival in New York, a fantastic revival of it. And your friend was in the cast, so you got to go backstage and meet Alan Cumming. Um, and then you kind of hit it off. You interviewed him on stage. He asked you to perform with him. And, of course, you accepted. <laughs> it's like, sure, I'll do a show with you, Alan. Yeah. So you've been touring this cabaret act for, for some time. One of the songs that you've done together is a new version of the Cole Porter classic, You're the Top. Mm-hmm. And so you sing about him and he sings about you. Can you sing the part that he sings about you, about you being an NPR journalist? Yeah, I wrote these lyrics. So now oh, let me great. see if I can remember oh, them. Okay. He sings, um, I'm just going to go from the beginning because okay, I, that's fine. I can't say, okay, so... I sing, you're the top, you are joie de vivre, you're the top, you're a Broadway diva, you're a graceful swan, your name is on a bar, you are wild and frisky, a Scottish whiskey, a movie star. Then he goes, you're the top, you leave haters cursing, you're the top, you're taller in person. I was Mr. Floop, but you get the scoop, you pop, and if baby on the bottom, you're the top, then we modulate up a half step. Then I sing... You're the top, you're a vegan dinner, you're the top, you're a Tony winner, you are cabaret, a Shakespeare play, a dream, you're the Oxford comma, a network drama, your self-esteem. And then he sings, you're the top, your career is glittered, you're the top, you're all things considered, an effete aesthete, a garden's bumper crop, but if baby on the bottom, you're the top. I was proud of an effete aesthete, a garden's bumper crop. Yeah, I was no. proud of that one. <laughs> That's great. It's been so great talking with you. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank you so much, and thanks for writing your memoir. I really, really enjoyed it. It means the world to hear you say that. Ari Shapiro spoke with Terry Gross. He's one of the hosts of All Things Considered. His new memoir is called The Best Strangers in the World. Our next guest, Billy Crudup, is an actor you've probably seen more than you realize. He won critical praise and an Emmy Award for his performance in the Apple TV series The Morning Show with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. His film credits include Almost Famous, Sleepers, Jesus' Son, 20th Century Women, and Watchmen, where he played a Marvel comic superhero who's bald and blue. He's performed for years in theater, earning four Tony Award nominations and winning once for the Tom Stoppard play The Coast of Utopia. Crudup's latest project is Hello Tomorrow, a futuristic series on Apple TV+, Plus, where he stars as a salesman marketing timeshare properties on the moon to frustrated earthlings who look and dress like they're in the 1950s. Billy Crudup, welcome to Fresh Air. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'd like you to begin by just describing the world that is presented here in Hello Tomorrow. And we, you could call it futuristic, but that doesn't quite capture it, does it? Um, it's kind of set in the future that you would have envisioned in the 1950s. I mean, people Precisely. Are, people are yes, driving. If you went to the Expo, the World Expo, right. they've got the hover cars and jet packs. As Nick Padani, who plays my son in this series, noted, the hover cars hover, but they don't seem to go any faster. Right. And they took a, a wink and a nod approach to, I think, all of the gadgets that 
occupy our lives now that you know may or may not live up to the expectations that we had hoped. Right. The hover cars have big fins like the cars in the 50s, and the robots have these big cylindrical bodies with these little spindly arms. It's quite funny in a way. I assume all that stuff was not on the set while you're actually shooting. You, that's added later? It was indeed, actually. That was one of the thrills about making this show was the full carnival was on display every day. We had puppeteers. We had remote control people. We had CGI people. Uh, there was a kind of desperate reality to a lot of the characters' existence. And so you're trying to occupy that headspace while you're working with people who are in bright green leotards, manipulating <laughs> this rather clunky-looking robot. Yes, that will deliver a beer out of its stomach, though it might be uh, saturated with a little bit of motor oil as well. So the part of being in movies and doing plays and TV shows that I'm sure people who are not in the business think thrillingly of is the, being transported into another world. And... I've found the joy is that you are transported into the world of like the show people and it takes everyone. There's a hundred person crew on a show like this that is involved in, you know, nearly every shot. And that makes it um, a thrill to be a part of the circus in that way. Right. Well, let's hear a clip from Hello Tomorrow. Uh, this is in the first episode where you're at a counter of a diner grabbing a bite and uh, ever the salesman, you spot a guy a couple of seats over, a middle-aged guy who's down in the dumps, and you strike up a conversation, which he wants no part of, in which you tell him you can see he's a solid working man who just wants the best for his family, and he was replaced by a robot, a tin can, as you put it, and you have something that will help him. You're selling timeshares on the moon. I'll just mention that in the middle of this scene, there's a point where you show him a special token of the life that awaits him. That's a moon rock. You drop it on the counter. You'll hear that as we get into the scene. So we'll pick this up after you've been talking to this this down-in-the-dumps guy, played by Michael Harney, for a couple of minutes. Um, you speak first. Let's listen. I tell you, the fact that you haven't slugged me yet, it means that you got enough hope left in you to hear the one word that is going to save your life. You get hit a lot. Well, every time I'm wrong, but it's been a while. You left out the part I got a daughter don't pick up the phone when I call. You got a magic word that fixes that one? First, I just want to show you something, okay? What's that? That is from the Sea of Serenity. It's 243,000 miles above us on the bright side of the moon. My son picked that out for me. That's, that's my prized possession. Wow. Ah, well, there you go. You said it yourself. What? Wow. That's the one word none of us can live without. And I will promise you this, hand on heart, hundreds of happy folks to vouch, you'll be saying, wow, I love living on the moon. Where do I sign? <laughs> that is from Hello Tomorrow, the, the new series on Apple TV starring our guest, Billy Crudup. Um, you were such a committed salesman. You are so good at this and this. Now, I understand your dad was a great salesman. Is this right? He, well, I don't know if he was a great salesman, but he was a salesman. In fact, I'm sure he wasn't a great salesman when it comes to the bottom line, but he was a devoted salesman. What kind of stuff did your dad sell? Well, <laughs> there's nothing that he wouldn't sell. Usually stuff that fell off a truck, but there were some, you know, rather colorful objects like, um, an inflatable ice chest that uh, he wanted to market to professional sports teams. And he was living in Austin at the time, so he thought it would be a great accompaniment to some rafting. There's a lot of rafting around Austin. And so if you had an inflatable ice chest that kept your drinks cold while you floated down the river, that would be a tremendous idea. It didn't work was the one problem. It didn't keep things cold. And it was not a flotation device, so he had to have them reordered and have that printed <laughs> on the outside. Uh, we had a coffee additive. He had a, a business called Coffee Elite 
and he would sell this small additive to schools and prisons and big institutions to try to turn one pound of coffee into a pound and a half of coffee. There was all sorts of golf gadgets. There were Farrah Fawcett posters, uh, an umbrella hat that he got uh, Lou Brock to endorse at one point. It was called the Brock umbrella. <laughs> and uh, if he had hit his pet rock, yes, that, I think that would have been satisfying. That was the object in the 70s that was every salesman's Shangri-La. All you do is you pick up a rock, you put it in a box, and you say that's your pet rock. And uh, needless to say, the margins are pretty good on that. Yeah. And my dad was always looking for that and never found it. But I think he liked moving from commodity to commodity more. You know, as the series proceeds, uh, questions are raised about how real this promise is that your character, Jack Billings, is going to get these folks to the moon. And you wonder, I don't want to give too much away, but we wonder how much does Jack believe in it himself? Does he? Well, my father, he died of cancer in 2005. And he was in hospice uh, at the time. And I was visiting him and he he was emaciated at this point. And it clearly, you know, was imminent. And I can remember helping him out um, around the bed and it was just the two of us. And um, he, he whispered in my ear something and I couldn't quite hear it. And I said, what was that, dad? And he, he said, I'm gonna beat it. And there was no chance that he was gonna beat it. Um, they had exhausted every opportunity, had been through several rounds of chemotherapy and radiation. And um, I could not have wrestled that belief away from him if I tried. And that was a feature of his living. I believe that Jack tells himself this story again and again and again, that he can beat the odds and make this happen. Yes, there's obstacles. Yes, he doesn't have some of the the materials uh, or the material reality of the things that he's promised, but he will if he gets enough people involved, if he gets um, the right break at the right time. And as you're watching the show, you realize he does have access to the constituent components that could make this happen. And he certainly seems to have the belief in the drive. I wonder if that's enough. And I think that makes for a great narrative. Billy Crudup stars in the new Apple TV Plus series, Hello Tomorrow. He'll be back to talk more after a break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. We're speaking with actor Billy Crudup. He stars in Hello Tomorrow, a new retro-futuristic series on Apple TV+. You uh, went to school and studied communications and then went to the Graduate School of Acting at NYU, the Tisch Graduate Program, um, which I guess was a good place because New York is a great place to learn acting. There's a lot of actors around. I'm wondering, obviously, other than the experience of doing a lot of acting while you were there, do you feel you learned, got tools or approaches to acting that had a lasting impact when you got into the business? The way that they, Zelda Fitch Handler, an incredible artistic director and a great mind for the theater, gave an inspirational speech at the beginning of every year that made you feel like being an actor and being a, a, a part of the tradition of storytelling was necessary which was an unbelievable feeling to have. You're um, 
often so put off by your desire to be in front of people and the sort of vanity that goes with it. I and mean, you need it and you want it and you despise it. And she gave an alternate point of view, which was this is a glorious human tradition. And if you're going to undertake it, you should undertake it as a professional and a craftsperson. So make sure to build an instrument that can sustain you over time and build a way of being that allows you to be reflective, allows you to pivot, allows you to adjust and grow. And I don't think there's any chance I could have played Jack Billings with the kind of dexterity that Amit and Lucas demanded without not just the three years of training, but the 20 years of application of that training. It was essential for me. I mean, I could go on and on. It was that important an experience to me. The last play that I did was in 2017 or 18, I think. And uh, in it, I played over 10 characters and I would never have been able to manage that situation practically and emotionally and psychologically of standing up on stage um, alone for an hour and 15 minutes and telling a story, playing all those characters. And it really was what I trusted in, what I put my faith in was the foundation that, that I learned at NYU. Right. Um, I know that you learned how to prepare and that you prepared diligently for every role. Um, it wasn't that long after you got out of graduate school, I understand, that you managed to get a role in Tom Stoppard's play Arcadia, which is I haven't seen it, but actually our producer, Lauren Quinzel, who booked our interview, saw you in that performance. This We're going back a few years. Oh, wow. Here. 1995. Yeah. yeah. And was enormously impressed. I mean, you play, you play this guy, Septimus Hodge, who's an English, 19th century English tutor, tutoring a, a, a young teenager, and he knows Lord Byron and all. I mean, I, it's, it's quite a tale. Um, there's an interesting story about you getting the part in the audition. You want to just share this with us? Sure. Um, Daniel Swee was the casting director for Lincoln Center, and I got uh, an audition, as you do. Your agent calls you and says, okay, there's a part for a, a 22-year-old guy in a play, a new Tom Stoppard play. And as an acting student, the notion of even reading a new Tom Stoppard play that was incidentally going to be directed by Trevor Nunn, who I had been watching since my junior year of high school on um, these cassette tapes. I think they were called Acting Shakespeare. I can't remember. But Lions in the theater, not just in my imagination, but practically speaking, I think he was the youngest person to ever run the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company. And so these names are sort of thrown out there uh, in a way that is heart-stopping to a uh, new graduate from school. And so there was a kind of magic already attached to just being able to audition. And when you started to read the part, you could see that it wasn't just a great Tom Stoppard play. It was a masterpiece of theater. In any case, I went in, I, I did my audition. Um, I had a British accent, so I was a little bit clumsy with that because I have to work at it. And Daniel Sweet gave me an adjustment. And I kind of understood what he meant. But, you know, there's, with acting, there's a cerebral understanding and then there's a visceral understanding. So until you have the visceral understanding, you, you, you don't really process it in a way that feels authentic. It feels kind of like you're in your head. You're thinking about your choice. So in any case, I did it. And he said, thanks very much. I closed the door. Uh, and as soon as the door closed, the echo in the hallway um, reverberated, and I thought, "Oh crap! Now I know what he meant." And you could feel, you know, like the door is locked now. I can't get back inside. So I went outside to the payphone, called my agent. I said, "I really feel like there's a uh, adjustment that I can make. Could you get me back in?" And I was new enough as an actor to not understand that agents hear that every day. Um, that's probably <laughs> all all they hear is calls from their clients saying, oh, can you get me back in? I finally understand it now. Or I messed it up. I was just a little, the pressure got to me. Can I get back in? Um, and so sure enough, he called Daniel Sweet and Daniel said, no, he did fine. He's just not right for the part. But I was so invigorated by the um, understanding that uh, I, I had about the character by way of Daniel that I was taught in school to keep 
learning. If you reach a point where you have a threshold of, or your, your threshold of understanding is exceeded in some way, or you grow in some way, keep on that path, pursue growth at all costs. And so I started to rehearse it. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, Daniel called and said, well, we haven't been able to find anybody. If you really feel like you were able to make some adjustments, come back in. And by that point, I knew it like back and forth. I could do that first scene for you right now. Um, and uh, the next day I met with Trevor Nunn and the day after that I got the part and it, um, it totally changed um, the trajectory of my career. You got some good movie roles not long after that with some, some serious actors. And while you were building your career, you did some voiceover work, as a lot of actors do. And one was in a commercial that made a phrase iconic. Let's listen to this. Two tickets, $28. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, and two sodas, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. Real conversation with 11-year-old son, priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. Accepted all over, even Major League ballparks. What a great piece of ad copy. Uh, You did versions of that ad for how long? 13 years. Wow, wow. It was truly incredible. And not to mention the fact that I took the job just to lay down a demo track for a woman who was working for McCann Erickson, the ad agency that was trying to win the account. Um, But they hadn't won the account. So I just went in for the $200 session fee to set up a demo track. And then when they landed the account, they said, yeah, use whatever voice you used in the demo. And uh, I can remember... The first couple of years, feeling a little tied down. I was excited to be doing films, and I was off in Santa Fe working on a film called The High Low Country with Woody Harrelson, and one weekend I had to drive to Albuquerque to lay down some tracks for MasterCard, and I can remember it being annoying at the moment. And uh, it was probably a year after that. I wasn't working. I didn't have any prospects or something that I realized – I had the dream job that I could maintain this as long as possible and make a little bit of money that would um, enable me to make the kinds of artistic choices I wanted to, to to still be able to live in New York. So the pay was was good, right? I mean, for... Well, certainly by the hour, at least. (laughs) It was regular. And frankly, if you're an actor, you know, I think probably after the first couple of years, we would negotiate a contract... And whatever it is, you, they say, you know, you'll do 20 commercials for $10,000 and uh, you do them over the course of six months or 12 months, whatever it is. That's steady, predictable pay. That's very unusual as you're an up-and-coming actor. So that was the crucial part for me. It was steady and predictable. And so, well, you don't need to give me a number, but these, the years of doing the MasterCard commercials was really able to, to sustain you and let you do the work you Most wanted to definitely. Do. Yeah, yeah. Most yeah. definitely. It was, and I've, Dave probably auditioned for 400 voiceovers in the time since then, and I think I have landed three. <laughs> wow. I wanted to talk about Almost Famous, which is a film you did with Cameron Crowe, I guess, in 2000 or so. It's, it's set in the 1970s. I'm sure a lot of people saw this. It's a movie about a teenager with writing talent who talks his way into an assignment from Rolling Stone to travel with a, a rock band called Stillwater and, and write a story about them. And you're in the band. You're the band's best musician, a virtuoso guitar player. Um, there are a lot of great concert scenes in here. I gather you had not played guitar when you got this job. Um, we, we've all played some air guitar, right? But this had to be a little more authentic. How did how did you learn to do it? What you know to to sell yourself as a as a rock guitarist? Well, I, in the same way that you fake everything else, um, you have to understand the the narrative device that the filmmaker or the playwright is trying to use 
to establish that you're um, a virtuoso, whatever it is. And for Cameron, it was really one shot that he wanted a close-up on my fingers during a, a solo and then wanted to be able to pan up to me. And so I essentially spent four months trying to learn that one riff. And the other components of it about handling the guitar, being a part of the band, we had band practice for five weeks or four weeks or six weeks, I can't remember now. But every night we would end up in, I think, Westwood somewhere at a, a studio and Peter Frampton and Nancy Wilson and Cameron Crow would try to teach the four of us how to become a band. That's Nancy Wilson of the band Heart, right? Correct. Yeah. And I confess, whether or not we had actually filmed the movie, the experience of Bandcamp was worth the price of admission. I mean, into being an actor. It was so glorious to be there with Nancy Wilson and Peter Frampton and Cameron Crowe, hear their stories. There was an enormous pressure because I didn't want to suck as a virtuosic guitarist. But um, the joy that came from uh, being a part of a rock band, it was there in the room. So it was one of those lucky experiences. Well, so, so I mean, you're in a room. I mean, that's not like being on a stage in a, in a huge auditorium of screaming fans, right? What, what was the... So with that, and that was, that was yet to come. We, we had that moment at the Palladium um, when we were shooting a live show that appears in the movie. And Cameron starts off backstage. We're all sort of, I've had just had this conversation with, with William's mother and she's sort of chastised me. And then we have to go out. That's the young writer, right? Yeah. Right. That's the young writer uh, played by Patrick Fugit. Um, and we go out on the stage and it's pitch black and there's 1500 extras there which is an enormous uh, amount of extras. I'm not entirely sure how they managed it, but they did. And it was packed in there. And they played the music over playback. And let me tell you, the effect of even a fake audience screaming for you while you're playing fake guitar is beyond anything I've experienced. I can understand immediately how musicians become uh, contorted in their psyches because you are truly idolized and worshipped in a way that's uh, unusual. Right. As I recall, there's one scene where the place is dark and it's your guitar lick that starts the set and the lights come that's on. It. It's this explosion of light and exactly. sound and music. Wow. Oh, I just got chills thinking about it again. It was so it's such a incredibly visceral moment. Yeah. Part of this story is about, you know, road culture in, among rock stars, with, mm. you know, guys in their 20s and groupies mm. and roadies and all of that. And I, I, I thought we would hear a short scene here. This this is the band, I think in the story you're in, Topeka, Kansas, and a concert has ended badly and you end up after the concert with this writer, William, and you... Um, encounter some high school kids who invite you to a party. Um, some real say, people. Say, yeah. I think that's what they're called. Yes, right. <laughs> well, And so the scene we're going to hear, you're at the party and you're really high, I think on acid actually, and you're talking to these, I guess they're high school students, and you're holding forth to them in a way that to, in, oh, your, yes. to, in your altered state seems profound. Let's, let's listen. You, Aaron are what it's all about. You're real. Your room is real. Your friends are real. Real, man, real. You know? Real. Real, you know? You're, you're, you're more important than all the silly machinery. Silly machinery, and you know it. In 11 years, it's going to be 1984, man. Think about that. Want to see me feed a mouse to my snake? Yes. <laughs> Great line to finish with. Um, that, that is our guest, Billy Crudup, in the movie Almost Famous. You know, I, I want to just play one more little scene from that party. This is a short one. It's it, You end up on the roof of a garage, which is mm -hmm. over, a over a swimming pool. 
and you're standing there, and you know dozens of kids are, be- are below you, just loving having this rock star at their party. And you get carried away, and, and here's a little of what, what you say. Let's listen. <laughs> I am a golden god! Yeah! 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 I am a golden god! A golden god. Has that phrase followed you throughout your career when you see people on the street? <laughs> well, most notably when I encountered uh, Robert Plant uh, at LAX. Apparently, as reported by Cameron, that line came from him. Uh, he witnessed it. He had long golden locks. But I, I saw Robert Plant, and I was like, okay, I'll go up and talk to him. Um, and maybe maybe this will be true. And also, this will be my chance to talk to Robert Plant. How awesome would that be? But I panicked, and I went the other way. And then I boarded uh, the plane, and there he was sitting adjacent to me. And so, again, I panicked for five hours. But when we landed... As I pulled my carry-on off uh, out of the compartment, he took the moment to remark on how crappy my carry-on was and said, well, that looks like that seemed better days. At which point I said, my name is Billy Crudup. I played Russell Hammond in Almost Famous. It's reported that you said, um, I'm a golden god, and Cameron saw that. Is that true? And he was like, oh, it is you. Wait, that's my line. <laughs> and I said, well, it's my line now. And I'll the plane and... Hand on art, the flight attendant goes, oh, the two golden gods. So it it has followed me around only when I employ it, Dave. Well, um, Billy Crudup, thanks so much for speaking with us. It's it's been a lot of fun. Dave, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, and I hope people enjoy Hello Tomorrow. Billy Crudup stars in the new Apple TV Plus series, Hello Tomorrow. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com thematic investing. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.